It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Katie Pavlich, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. How much do things like Ukraine funding, a presidential impeachment inquiry, and a Republican governor's endorsement matter to American voters as we head into 2024? I think we're going to find out that they matter a great deal. And when people ask me about the polling today, which is uh, Donald Trump is doing really well, and in some cases ahead of uh, Joe Biden, particularly in some important swing states. I'm Dave Anthony. China may be an even bigger threat than we thought, infiltrating American infrastructure. I think this really is about the strategic competition and really about China preparing for war. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Before Congress heads into a winter break for the rest of 2023, some big decisions have to be made, like will Republicans begin a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden? Minnesota Republican Congressman Tom Emmer echoed the House Speaker, who explained this is a legal decision. The White House sent Chairman Comer and Jordan a letter stating they have no intention of complying with our subpoenas and requests for interviews without a formal vote. And the National Archives has withheld thousands of pages of documents and emails. It's clear the House will have to defend our lawful investigations in court. So far, Republicans have not proven wrongdoing by President Biden. And Democrats like Jim McGovern of Massachusetts mocked the GOP effort. And what's left in the toolbox? An impeachment stunt they want to hang around Joe Biden's neck to tarnish him as he heads into the next election. Tuesday, the president was hosting Ukraine's president as Republicans push back against a large aid package that would include billions of dollars more for Ukraine. Congress needs to pass a supplemental funding to Ukraine before they break a holiday recess, before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give it. House Republicans, though, insist foreign aid needs to depend on changes to border policy in the U.S. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham told Fox News host of the story Martha McCallum he agreed. So here's my statement to President Biden. I want to help you on Ukraine because it's in our interest, but I cannot help you help other people until you change your policies that make America so exposed to another attack. These types of foreign policy and domestic security questions are dominating 2024 presidential politics. And even though former President Trump is dominating Republicans in the polls, New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu decided to endorse former South Carolina Governor and former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley on Tuesday. So how much is all of this impacting voters? And if President Trump is so far ahead in the polls, how much do endorsements from governors matter? The thing about governors and and governor endorsements is they want their endorsement to be effective. Arnon Mishkin is the director of the Fox News Decision Desk. So part of the calculus that goes into deciding I'm going to endorse this person is, and by the way, that person's going to do okay, and people are then going to give me credit. And, and I'm not suggesting that it was cynical on either part, but it was a factor in both uh, Reynolds' endorsement of DeSantis and Sununu's endorsement of Nikki Haley uh, this week that was that those candidates will be effective in my state, be it Iowa right. or New Hampshire. It also sends a message to sort of wayward Republicans in New Hampshire who are skeptical of Donald Trump because they know that 
Chris Sununu was picking someone who he thought could beat Donald Trump. And so I think that a lot of those people who may not really have liked Nikki Haley will think Nikki Haley is the vehicle for expressing my disappointment uh. Or, uh, against Donald Trump. So I think amongst the candidates who were really uh, unhappy to hear the news that Sununu was endorsing Nikki Haley was one Chris Christie, because um, I oh, think sure. it will it will have an impact on his voters. And um, former President Trump still dominates in Iowa and New Hampshire and all the early states and the national polling. But these candidates aren't in our fighting it seems as as hard to be in second place as they would to be in first. Yes. What's the thinking there? Is that 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 Trump's legal issues or court cases will mean will mean something next year? So second place will matter. I mean, what what's going on? Do you think? I think all the candidates to date have the non-Trump candidates on the Republican side have thought if I could just get rid of everybody else, I'll be the alternative to Donald Trump, <laughs> and that'll be good. Because there are many Republicans, not a lot, not a majority, but there are many Republicans who do not want Donald Trump as the nominee. And there's another group of Republicans who are fine with Donald Trump as the nominee, but think, can he win again? Um, you know, he lost in 2020. Um, and uh, and there are these legal issues. And so I think a lot, all these people are hoping if I can finish second, I'll get rid of every other non-Trump opponent and it'll just be me versus Trump and that that will be advantageous. And the question, I think, from our perspective is, if Ron DeSantis has finished second in Iowa, which the polls suggest is going to happen today, and then Nikki Haley finishes second in New Hampshire, then you have a situation where you have Donald Trump versus two solid people, um, DeSantis and, and Haley. And I think in the end, uh, that'll, that's actually good news for Donald Trump. A split, right. A yeah, split, they, they, uh, right. They, the opponents to Trump get split, and, um, and yep. lo and behold, he's the nominee once again. Let's talk about some of the news of the week here. Um, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, was in D.C. hoping for, you know, that aid to pull through. Last week, the Senate blocked it in a larger package that included Israel aid, right? And, and, and Senate and House Republicans say, look, we need things to change at the border for any aid to go through. Um, specifically asylum and humanitarian parole, because so many people are coming. Uh, polling shows the border is on American minds in, in a more significant way than it had been. Does linking foreign aid spending to you know, promises on changing things at the border work? Is that a smart tactic if we're looking at it through the voter lens? Uh, I think it works on both sides. I think there are people whom, from whom the primary issue is border security or immigration, and they like the fact that these other things, these foreign aid packages, especially Ukraine, the Republicans are forcing border security um, by focusing on the uh, on linking these two things. The other side, um, who are sort of strongly supportive of either supporting Ukraine or supporting the Israel effort against Hamas, uh, it's sort of, well, pay the price, okay, get it. Um, and that's and I think that's puzzling right now because what you have is basically an inside game in Washington about what are we going to agree on the border and then what can we do on Ukraine and Israel? Um, and my sense is the White House isn't saying anything because they want to pay as small a price as possible. And the Republicans aren't saying we're ready to agree because they want to get as much on the border as possible. And so this is one of those situations where it's going to look like nothing good is going to happen. And then all of a sudden there'll be some agreement and everyone will, and you'll wonder, well, why was there all this bad news that coming out for the past few days? Mm. Um, that's my bet. Um, and that's, you know, what uh, exp more experienced Capitol Hill watchers than I have said that negotiations on Capitol Hill are no, 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 no. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
It's a, that that's very succinctly and well put. Um, let me ask you about this impeachment inquiry because Republicans are are talking about formalizing this. And Speaker Johnson said that, you know, this is a legal decision, not a political one, so that they can obtain legal documents more easily. This is all, of course, related to allegations that are connected to Hunter Biden, right, and and money he made through foreign business deals. Do Republicans run any risks here politically formalizing an impeachment inquiry against President Biden as we roll into 2024? Does it turn some of those independent and swing state voters off? Um, Time will tell. I mean, I think that, you know, we've had over the past quarter century two major experiences with impeachment. Uh, The first was Monica Lewinsky, uh, which resulted in uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. And the second is the Ukraine investigation when when, uh, Trump was asking Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, if he could start an investigation of Biden in exchange for getting some aid from the U.S. Uh, In both cases, the one commonality is, A, the impeachment was done on a partisan basis, and B, what it did was it solidified support for the incumbent amongst his party. Um, So Clinton got stronger amongst Democrats as a result of that impeachment. And while it didn't help Donald Trump amongst independents, it certainly helped amongst Republicans. It sort of solidified a lot of uh, Republicans sort of potentially skeptical of Trump to be very strongly supportive of it. We'll find out what's going to happen here. I mean, what I have not yet seen how much evidence do the Republicans have that Biden himself was benefiting from whatever it is that Hunter Biden was doing. So I was actually going to add that in here because Don Bacon, a Nebraska Republican congressman, considered more moderate. He he said it's it's important to do this. And it is important to note that whatever's coming in about Hunter Biden and the money he may have made, there has not been any any linkage to the, the president directly. Given all of that, is it significant to have a maybe a more moderate Republican like Don Bacon saying, you know what, let's still do this anyway. Let's let's see what any sort of documents we can get will show and we'll let the people decide. I I think it's significant that Bacon is doing this because it means he's going to vote for it. And if Bacon is voting for it, I think the Republic, all the Republicans will be voting for it. And so you do you are going to have a majority to sort of launch this investigation. And the risk is uh, the risk for the Democrats is that they're going to find something. Um, and that that's going to be damaging to Joe Biden. The risk for the Republicans is they won't find anything. And and to a certain extent, you've had a couple of incidents the past few months where the Republicans have said um, that they have something. And then when you look at it, it's really sort of less than a nothing burger. Okay, one more for you. Former President Trump told Arshon Hannity last week at that town hall that he won't be a dictator except on day one (laughs) when he'll close the border and drill for oil and gas. And, and people, you know, freaked out at this comment. President Biden has noted it as well. Um, others say he's, of course, joking. Um, it, it's certainly going to be used against Trump in campaigning. But Trump's language uh, and the way he uses language is not a new phenomenon. Does it matter, um, you know, things like that, you know, these you know, these kind of bombastic statements, um, as he only seems to be gaining in, in the polling with all of his legal issues? My sense is that, you know, look, there are both parties have wings who are sort of strong believers in the philosophies of the Republican Party, which is small government and the Democratic Party, which is big, larger government. There are wings and and 
And I think that, you know, you know the sort of the, the mainstream media of America has been making a big thing out of this issue of is Donald Trump going to be a dictator? Is there really going to be any sort of guardrails in a second Trump administration? And I think that we have to remember that the, the, the rhetoric that a lot of people supposedly are offended by about Trump is actually motivating to a lot of Republican voters. And that's one of the things that one of the reasons he won in 2016 and he came close in 2020. OK, so Arnon, endorsements, Ukraine aid, the border, impeachment inquiry. Voters care about these things, but it depends, right? <laughs> and what's, the, what's the what's the I guess what's your one liner soundbite if you had one about uh, about how much these things sort of matter a year away? Uh, I think we're going to find out that they matter a great deal. And when people ask me about the polling today, which is uh, Donald Trump is doing really well. Um, and in some cases ahead of uh, Joe Biden, particularly in some important swing states. My view is, number one, what people think of Donald Trump today in December of 2022 is the same thing they're going to be thinking about him in October of 2024. And it's not going to change. People, then the people will think that's is great and other people don't like that. Um, Joe Biden, on the other hand, is this amorphous political animal. When I look at the polling number, I see Biden's number going up and down depending on the situation. And so I think what matters in, to the election in 2024 is not going to be what the polls are saying in December 2023, but it's more about what the impact is going to be. What does the Ukraine look like nine months from now? What does the Middle East look like nine months from now? What does our relationship with China look like nine months from now? And what does um, the economy look like? Uh, most importantly. And, you know, Joe Biden's fingerprints are all over all four of those things in a much bigger way than a lot of presidents. And so I think his his whether or not he gets uh, reelected is going to be all about whether or not he can get something done in any of those four areas that people feel. Arnon Mishkin in charge of Fox News's decision desk. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you very much for having me, Jessica. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime Podcast. This week, I spoke to Clay Chabot, a man who spent over 20 years in prison, wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape he did not commit. Clay's imprisonment stemmed from the false testimony of his brother-in-law, who was the one that actually committed the crimes. Clay joins me to discuss what justice means to him all these years later. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary, coming up. It's no secret China is an adversary. The FBI director has said more than once, China is the biggest threat to the United States, especially to our cybersecurity, with the biggest hacking operation of any country in the world. And a new Washington Post story underscores that, reporting China has a cyber army that's been invading critical services, including utilities, with public and private targets in the U.S., State Department spokesman Matt Miller says... This is an issue that we have raised on a number of, uh, of occasions with the Chinese government. Uh, we have long been concerned about their cyber espionage and other uh, intrusive cyber techniques. And those techniques, according to U.S. intelligence officials, include what's called a disruption playbook to potentially upend our daily lives. I think this really is about the strategic competition 
and really about China preparing for war. Matthew Kranig is vice president and senior director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security for the Atlantic Council, and he's a professor at Georgetown University. What they were doing with these cyber intrusions was getting into critical infrastructure, laying in wait. Uh, and then the idea was that if there's a major conflict, uh, if China, uh, say, invades Taiwan, China's afraid that the United States is going to project military power forward into Asia to defend Taiwan. Uh, and they want to stop us from doing that. So they uh, want to hit uh, work, power, um, energy in the United States to make it difficult for the United States to move forces from bases in Hawaii and the continental United States um, into Asia. Quite simply, they're they're preparing for war. So are we talking about military targets or are we talking about civilian? Both? I mean, if they're trying to help or prevent us from fighting a war, why would they go after civilian targets? Well, because the U.S. military uh, depends on civilian critical infrastructure. If the power goes out uh, in, in a town where there's a U.S. military base, if the water goes out, uh, if uh, a port is, is disrupted, uh, then that prevents the U.S. military uh, from projecting power. It disrupts the logistics. And, and then also it, it's possible that China would want to combine cyber attacks with uh, physical kinetic attacks in the event of conflict. And so uh, if there were really a war, um, again, they might combine cyber attacks uh, to disrupt uh, the critical infrastructure and then combine that with physical attacks um, against the bases um, themselves. Okay, so they're infiltrating these different systems. How are they doing it? Uh, Essentially, as a dictatorship, they can compel the private sector to cooperate with them in a way that we can't, thank goodness, in a democracy in the free world. And so when uh, Chinese uh, companies, researchers find uh, software vulnerabilities, the Chinese Communist Party uh, requires them to report to the Chinese Communist Party. And then the party stockpiles these vulnerabilities to use in um, cyber attacks. They have a big army. Uh, It's a large country and they have contractors uh, paid by the CCP uh, who are doing these kind of uh, cyber intrusions um, all day, every day. They're sophisticated getting into the U.S. uh, systems, um, um, uh, finding vulnerabilities and and, um, mimicking uh, real users in some cases. So this goes to show the importance of changing your password and and our daily kind of cybersecurity. Right, because a company can spend a lot of money to firewall everything. But if an employee is careless, they're in, right? Yeah, that's right. And so this is a big part of the challenge that the vast majority of the critical infrastructure in the United States is owned by the private sector. And so how how can we get them to improve their cybersecurity uh, standards? Uh, We're making progress, but it's still a challenge. Well, despite China's threats to the U.S., the Biden administration has been trying to improve relations. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen have both made trips there in recent months. In November... President Biden met Chinese leader Xi Jinping at a summit in San Francisco. I again emphasize to President Xi that the United States does not seek conflict. Trying to ease tensions that have only grown after the Chinese spy balloon that crisscrossed the U.S. mainland, Chinese threats to Taiwan, close military encounters at sea and in the air with the U.S., and of course national security concerns over TikTok. I've called it a new Cold War, and and this is an intense rivalry. There is the it's across the board economic techno, technology 
uh, military competition could result in World War III. And so I think we need to um, be much more focused on this. And, and the idea that this is a competition, uh, kind of like a tennis match, I think is, is not quite right. Um, and then this idea that we're going to cooperate with China, uh, like you said, Biden meeting with Xi at the summit last month, I, I think is a little naive. Um, China in these areas where people say we can cooperate, climate, arms control, public health, uh, China's actually a pretty bad actor in, in all of those areas. So I think it's naive. And, and I think it's also counterproductive when it comes to issues like uh, cybersecurity. You know, if um, these uh, utility companies think, oh, we're cooperating with China now, um, you know, maybe there's not the same uh, in, uh, uh, motivation to, to get our cybersecurity practices right. If they understand that this is an intense rivalry, we're going to be in this rivalry for decades, could result in World War III. Uh, and uh, I think that would help to clarify the, the stakes and uh, maybe motivate uh, some of these um, uh, cyber uh, critical infrastructure companies to uh, improve their cyber practices. You know, we have Russia and Ukraine. Now we have Israel battling Hamas. And I've heard people worry that China could take advantage of all these other conflicts the U.S. is trying to, you know, do what they can to stop from blowing up into something bigger and go to Taiwan. Is that how real is this threat that China's going to invade Taiwan militarily? Well, unfortunately, I think it is a real uh, threat. So uh, just look at what Xi Jinping is saying. Xi has asked his military to give him the ability to invade Taiwan by 2027. Uh, so not that he'll do it by 2027, but that he wants the ability to do it by 2027. We're not making the investments we need to be making in our own um, defenses. Uh, we don't have the ability to deal with Russia, Iran, China, all at the same time. And so I do think that if China thinks that we're distracted um, elsewhere, they may, may see an opportunity uh, to go for it. And Biden has said four times that he would defend Taiwan. I think that's the right position. But, um, uh, you know, uh, so there is a possible pathway to how the United States and China are, are in a major war in, in the coming years. Yeah. And and their their Navy is powerful. Right. I mean, China, that's a tough fight for us. It is. And they have geography on their side as well. Uh, Taiwan's a, a small island um, just off their coast. We'd have to project power. Uh, all the way uh, to the other side of the world, uh, which again goes back to the cyber attacks. If China can prevent us from projecting power there, it makes the fight um, easier uh, for them. And, um, you know, we, we see in Ukraine, the Ukrainians' uh, amazing will to resist. And so does Taiwan have the same will to resist? Can they hold out? Can they give us enough time to get there and, and defend them? Uh, and so that would be a, a tough fight. Uh, and, and of course, it would be much better to deter the attack uh, in the first place and not have to uh, fight it. So I think that's why getting our, our defenses right now, including our cyber defenses, is so important. Now, Matthew, you're, you're on the Congressional Commission on the strategic posture of the United States. So we're dealing with missile defense and cybersecurity and also nuclear weapons. We've, we've had now a breakdown in a treaty with Russia. We have the concern about North Korea. We even have Iran nuclear concerns. Where are we when it comes to nuclear weapons and nuclear fears in 2023? Well, well, unfortunately, nuclear weapons are back. And I think many people thought these were, you know, kind of Cold War uh, relics and, and the world had moved on, but but they're back. 
And um, I'd say the biggest development here is China is engaging in a massive nuclear buildup, uh, maybe the biggest nuclear buildup since the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. Uh, China is going to quintuple the size of its nuclear arsenal uh, by 2035. And so this means for the first time in American history, the United States is going to have to deal with two uh, nuclear superpowers. In the past, it was really just Russia and, and China and North Korea and others had small arsenals. Now the United States is going to need to deal with two nuclear superpowers at the same time. And that was really the major uh, question that this congressional commission that I'm serving on was asked to address. Uh, what does this mean for U.S. Um, nuclear strategy and posture? And in the report that we just delivered to Congress, uh, we recommend uh, not an immediate nuclear buildup, but that the United States begin taking the steps now uh, so that it does have the possibility of, of increasing the size of its nuclear arsenal. We, we fear them also as an economic superpower. We, we rely on them so much for trade and, 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 and all the things that, that a lot of people worry about after COVID, too, with the you know, supply chain and all our medicines made there. How is China's economy and how strong is China internally? Well, um, uh, China has some real strengths. Um, it, it is the number two economy on Earth. Um, it is gaining influence around the world. It is investing in its military. Uh, but it has real weaknesses as well. And I think sometimes we overlook those um, weaknesses uh, to our uh, uh, peril. Can we do more to make it tougher on China by strengthening our own manufacturing and, and making us less reliant on them? Some refer to it as de-risking, uh, but, but essentially the idea is that in areas of sensitive national security concern, defense-related uh, trade, uh, technology-related trade, uh, other uh, critical supply chains like uh, pharmaceuticals or critical minerals, uh, that we do need to uh, essentially have a hard decoupling with China uh, and, and stop that trade and investment and, and find other places uh, for our supplies. And as we do that, it'll have the benefit not only of securing our own supply chain, but also of weakening um, China. And we have to lock down our infrastructure a little better right on the cyber front. And that's right. Uh, that's going to be a key piece of all of this. And, uh, you know, there are um, the, the, the U.S. government, as I said, Department of Homeland Security is uh, trying um, sharing um, information with the private sector on best practices uh, they do um, exercises uh, together, kind of cybersecurity tabletop exercises. Uh, but there are some interesting proposals out there about what the United States uh, could do in addition. Uh, one of them uh, uh, that we did here at the Atlantic Council calls for a uh, kind of cyber core reserve capacity that, especially in the event of a wartime, that the best cybersecurity experts from the private sector and elsewhere uh, could be called up and, and go to work uh, defending critical infrastructure to prevent China from uh, conducting the kind of attacks that they were preparing for this week. Well, that is very interesting. Matthew Kranig, Vice President and Senior Director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security for the Atlantic Council, professor at Georgetown University. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And... 
In other news, I'm Gianna Gelosi. A drug that could potentially extend the life of large breed dogs is closer to being approved by the FDA. The biotech company Loyal says the drug may help slow down age-related processes for dogs that are 40 pounds or more. A spokesperson says the medication works by interacting with a hormone called IGF-1 that accelerates the aging process. It's designed to prevent age-related canine diseases rather than waiting for the symptoms to appear. Last week, the company said the drug cleared early hurdles with the FDA, signaling the data so far shows the drug's potential effectiveness. More milestones have to be hit, though, before the drug is fully approved and can hit the market, like clinical trials and a review of safety and manufacturing data. The average dog's lifespan is about 10 to 13 years, with larger breeds aging faster and having an even shorter life expectancy, according to veterinarians who spoke with Fox News Digital. The drug could be available in 2025. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, candidates travel across the country. They're trying to make connections with early state voters. They remain in the shadow of the current frontrunner, former President Trump, who has adopted somewhat of a courtroom campaign strategy. And it's working. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? How could anyone have watched that hearing on Capitol Hill last week around anti-Semitism at colleges like Harvard, MIT, and Penn and heard everything the presidents of those universities said and came away with the idea that Elise Stefanik, Republican congresswoman, New York, should be the target of satire? Why? Because she has an R next to her name? This skit was flaming hot garbage no question about it i mean did saturday night live hire rashida talib to be its head writer and this may well go down as the most tone deaf most horribly acted skit this show which has been on the air for nearly 50 years has ever done i mean you could feel the studio audience cringing in their seats and lauren michaels who still runs things over at saturday night live for him as a jewish man to greenlight this script is enough to make your hair hurt This used to be a show that hit both sides without apology. Dana Carvey's impression of George H.W. Bush was simply the best. He even got invited to the White House to perform it. Daryl Hammond as Bill Clinton was absolute genius. Will Ferrell as George W. Bush, epic. Then the show decided mocking Barack Obama during his presidency, well, that was basically off limits. And then, of course, we got Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump, which was an angry and awkward portrayal that belonged more on MSNBC than NBC. The only somewhat funny thing to come out of the Stefanik skit was that SNL went with it after Penn President Liz McGill resigned due to overwhelming blowback. The good news is, is that Saturday Night Live is now getting absolutely pulverized on social media right now from all sides for this, and at least that's encouraging. And remember, think about all the stars that Saturday Night Live has turned out over the years. Belushi, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Eddie Murphy, Adam Sandler, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Dana Carvey, Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Kristen Wiig, I could go on. But we're not seeing any breakout stars lately, are we? That's because the people currently on the show simply ain't good. Do you know what a big turning point was for Saturday Night Live? It was 2016. Trump wins the election. And a few nights later, there's Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton singing 
hallelujah with tears in her eyes during the cold open, which is, you know, supposed to be funny. And when she finished the song, she looks at the camera and says while choking up, I'm not giving up and neither should you. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. Good God. And for four years from there during the Trump era, you might as well have had Rachel Maddow and Jen Psaki as cast members. That's not what SNL is supposed to be. It's supposed to be equal opportunity comedy. But now, being unpredictable is not what Saturday Night Live is. Instead, it is profoundly predictable. And maybe that's why ratings are going into the toilet. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.